Welcome to the Faithful Teaching Podcast, an exploration of how faith in Jesus impacts our view of who we teach, what we teach, and how we teach. We're your hosts, James Walker, Mike Alvarez, and Joseph Jasper. I think a lot of people today, if you're asking them, what's the storyline that uh, heaven and hell would fit into you? I think a lot of people have a storyline that says, uh, right now I live on earth, one day I'll die, and when I die, God will either send me up to heaven or down to hell. And so it's what I call kind of the earth now, heaven, hell later story. And I think that's actually a really problematic story. That it's not the way the gospel presents it. Today, our guest is Joshua Ryan Butler. He's the pastor at Imago Day Community Church in Portland, Oregon. He's also the author of The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God. All right, so we're back here with another Faithful Teaching Podcast, and today we have Joshua Ryan Butler, uh, author of The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God, as well as a pastor at Imago Day Church joining us. So Joshua, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, you guys. Glad to get the chance to connect. Cool. Um, well, first off, right off the bat, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your experience, maybe your testimony and, and your work in ministry uh, that you've got up in Portland. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, again, my name's Josh. I have uh, my wife, Holly, and I have been married 11 years. We've got three uh, children, uh, seven, uh, four, and three. And I've been a pastor here in the Portland area for uh, about 15, 16 years at, at the same church at Imago Day. And um, particularly over the years, have been focused on overseeing our local ministries here in the city and our international partnerships overseas. Uh, so locally, that's looked a lot like uh, working with foster care, refugees, homelessness, anti-trafficking, things of that nature. And then internationally in areas like uh, clean water, uh, housing, sanitation, uh, but through local churches, kind of local churches on mission uh, internationally. And so uh, as well as church planting and all in the midst of that, too. And yeah, and I think as a pastor, uh, you know, have in my own life, I kind of came to faith back in college and had a, I'd say that was where, you know, I, I had been to a church prior to that, but it was really in, in college where I had sort of this encounter with Jesus that the uh, gospel kind of came to life. And, and I'd say between my freshman and sophomore year, really understood who Christ was in a way that kind of turned my world upside down or perhaps better yet, right side up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then as a pastor over the years, you know, well, just as a follow, following Jesus, there were a lot of questions that I wrestled with that friends of mine had for me suddenly. Um, you know, I remember coming back to my dorm room after, uh, you know, this encounter with Christ and telling my roommate, oh, you'll never believe it. Like, God is so good. Like, to, I, I just had this encounter with Jesus and just kind of naturally spilling out, like, how, the goodness of God and who he is. And my roommate's very, you know, first question back to me when I was finished was, um, so you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> and I was like, Dude, I didn't even bring up that topic. I wasn't even thinking about that, you know. Um, but I, I found for a lot of folks, I think that um, sometimes questions like that, there are some tough questions in our culture today that we may not be asking, but friends and family and, and others around us are. And over time, often those questions become our questions too. So I kind of grappled with that and things like that and tried to begin just pressing deeper into the gospel and, and understanding more. How has the church historically understood this? What are you know different ways that people have grappled with it? Um, and then years later, as a, as a pastor, finding a lot of folks in our church in our city, uh, maybe having some caricatures of the gospel, caricatures of who uh, the gospel says that God is. And so um, part of my 
hope or passion has been trying to help uh, confront some of the caricatures that are out there and help people kind of reclaim a healthier, robust understanding of who God is in a way that's consistent with kind of faithful, historic Christian orthodoxy. Great. So just looking at, I mean, that first question of, do you think I'm going to hell? From that point, is that like a sticking point, some of the inspiration for the skeletons in God's closet? And can you talk a little bit about that book? And what is it? Is it um, rethinking, uh, I forget the subtitle that's there, but rethinking uh, judgment, hell, and holy war, right? Yeah, so uh, so the book is called The Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, the subtitle is uh, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, The Hope of Holy War. And the premise is just that I think a lot of folks um, fear that God is kind of hiding some skeletons in the closet. These tough topics where if we were to really open up the closet doors, open up scripture, and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we'd find God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. Uh, but I found it's because I think we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. Uh, so one of the things I try and do is offer some paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years uh, to confront some of those caricatures and uh, you know offer some paradigm shifts that help reframe and reclaim a healthier biblical uh, understanding of what's happening in the story. And, and the real end game is just to say that um, God is good, like all the way down through, through, which sounds kind of basic, but you know, dude, God is good, not in spite of these topics or in contradiction to them, but, uh, but even because it's because of God's goodness that these topics arise when we kind of frame them properly. Uh, and so the end game is really helping people reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, that God's good all the way down through and through in his very bones, uh, not in spite of these topics, but because of them even. So, I mean, and, and the first question that comes to mind would be, um, how can a right understanding of, of hell, uh, of judgment, make me or help me to know God's goodness even more? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, to give an example, you know, there's a, a, a couple major, you know, angles that I look at it through in the book. But one is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people today, if you ask them, what's the storyline that uh, heaven and hell would fit into? I think a lot of people have a storyline that says, uh, right now I live on earth, one day I'll die, and when I die, God will either send me up to heaven or down to hell. And so it's what I call kind of the earth now, heaven, hell later story. And I think that's actually a really problematic story, that it's not the way the gospel presents it. Um, so to give you an example, uh, it, you know, that storyline tends to think of heaven and hell as sort of these two co-equal counterparts that are competing for my uh, eternal destiny. But scripture doesn't tend to talk about them that way. Uh, it doesn't talk about them as these uh, co-equal counterparts. Uh, so for an example, if you go to an online Bible, like say Bible Gateway, uh, you can type into the search feature, uh, heaven, hell, and hit search, and it'll show you how many times the words appear together in the biblical story. And most folks I found are shocked to find that uh, there are no times, zero times, that the two words uh, appear together. Um, in heaven, you know, obviously the Bible talks about heaven, talks about hell, but doesn't talk about them together and doesn't tend to talk about them the same way that we do. Uh, the gospel story, in contrast, is one in which, uh, you know, he heaven does have a counterpart, only it's not hell, it's earth. Uh, that if you type that same, you know, into that same search feature, hit heaven, earth, and hit search, you'll find that over uh, roughly 200 times uh, heaven and earth appear together, depending on which translation you're using, and threaded throughout the biblical story. And so um, heaven and earth are really the, the, the centerpiece or the pair of, of what's going on here. And I would suggest that we get hell wrong because we get heaven and earth wrong. And if we reclaim that 
broader biblical story of heaven and earth, the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. Uh, so the biblical storyline of heaven and earth I, I, I show is that, you know, in the beginning, God creates a good heavens and a good earth. Uh, but then they're torn apart by the destructive power of our sin. Um, but because God is good, he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring back together what the destructive power of sin, death, and hell have torn apart. And so in this storyline, we see you know heaven, heaven and earth are, one, they're created good by God, two, they're torn by sin, and three, they're destined for reconciliation. And what we start to see is that in every aspect of the story, God's goodness is what's driving the scene, right? Like, yeah, it's because God is good that he's lavished his goodness on creating a good heavens, a good or a good creation. Uh, it's because God is so extravagantly good with it. He's patient with us, with the destructive power of our sin and the ravaging that unleashes into his good world. Uh, but ultimately, it's because God is good also that uh, his patience will not last forever, that he's coming to reconcile heaven and earth and to, uh, as, I, as I put it, to get the hell out of earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to get us the hell out of earth, but to get the hell out of us on earth and to get, you know, uh, get, get the destructive power of our rebellion and for any uh, kind of unrepentant rebels who would, who would stay opposed to him and his kingdom. Um, he's going to deal with that because he wants to protect uh, the goodness of his kingdom and welcome all who want to come in, you know, to, to receive his mercy and bend the knee to his kingdom. And it's God's goodness that uh, protects his kingdom from the destructive power of unrepentant sin. Hmm. You know, that, that reminds me of something. I don't remember where I read it or maybe heard it, but just thinking about God's goodness driving things. Um, and it was somebody who was talking about the Pharaoh in Egypt and how him, God hardening his heart is kind of a problematic text and people wrestle with and try to figure out the goodness of God in that. But they kind of reframed it and said, look at all the chances, look at all the patience of God in dealing with Pharaoh. And yeah, there's that ultimate consequence that's there, but he continues to, to allow Pharaoh to continue and giving him chances to let his people go and everything. And um, yeah, it's just, just shifting that mindset a little bit makes a pretty big difference in seeing the goodness of God and the yeah, patience definitely. of God. Josh, can you talk a bit about how, you know, your, your paradigm shift there in putting heaven and earth and hell, having a right mindset about those three places, uh, what effect does that have on a person, practically speaking, like in their lives? How, did, how does that change a way that a person actually lives? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a, a, you know, a couple areas. Um, one would be, uh, I think there's a lot of implications. Uh, the book, obviously, that was a little snapshot. The, the book is a lot deeper. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but one that you know I throw out is you know, I think when we tend, you know, when we tend to think of things like um, the, the power of hell, I, I use as an example. You know, I think we tend to think of it often as like uh, um, someone doing Satan worship or using a Ouija board or you know. <laughs> you know which obviously those are bad, but those are a very uh, those are very fringe, rare things that don't usually happen, you know. And I think one of the things we I look at is how uh, just more ever present the reality of hell is at work in our world today. And so, looking at major international uh, systemic level things such as uh, genocide, trafficking. Uh, war, you know, these are kind of the wildfires that are, are raging and, and tearing our world apart, um, or very intimate personal things like uh, 
pride, lust, rage, greed, these things that we all struggle with. These are like the sparks that set God's good world aflame. And so I think being able to uh, look at the, the, you know, those things through the, the language of hell, like this invasive intruder that we have unleashed into God's good world, that we have been the agents of kind of sin's destruction into God's good creation. Um, doing that, I think it, it, incre- it should increase kind of uh, our awareness of the gravity of sin and likewise uh, our recognition that we can't just kind of um, compartmentalize these very fringe things like the Ouija board over here, you know, it's like the power bill uh, and, and ignore the much more ever present realities that are on the news every day of, you know, seeing the destructive power of sin and death and hell, uh, just tearing God's good world apart. And I think that should induce in us a longing for the goodness of God to be established in the world. There's a greater, uh, for me, it fuels my prayer life more that I actually want to cry out to God for his kingdom to break in here on earth as it is in heaven, that I, I want to work towards that end of uh, embodying you know, holiness and justice and striving to be uh, an agent or conduit of God's presence, his spirit, his kingdom uh, here today. Can you try to step into our world a little bit and think, why is this a relevant conversation for classroom teachers? Mm. Well, I think a couple thoughts. One is just in a Christian school, you know, I think the reality is a lot of the folks I've met and talked with over the years, their um, understanding of these topics has, has kind of come from one of two places. I say the caricatures have often either come from culture, you know, we kind of have like the Looney Tunes uh, cartoons and things, you know, things of that nature that, that have shaped a, a certain Disney uh, ask picture of, of hell and heaven and earth and all in our world. Um, but the other is uh, in their own, you know, for many people in their Christian upbringing. So the Christian teachers they had or the school they went to, um, that there's a real formative impact that I believe our education and things like that have on us growing up. And so I, I think it's significant. Um, if, if I were a teacher in a Christian school, I think the, the kind of weight of um, what kind of both formative intellectual and experiential uh, experience am I imparting to the students that I'm raising up? That should, that should be a pretty heavy weight. I think when Jesus talks about how uh, to kind of some of the religious leaders of his day and the teachers of the law that, uh, man, if they um, cause a, a little one to stumble, it would be better that, you know, child to stumble would be better if they had a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. <laughs> and like, that's, that, that feels like a pretty, that should add some gravity or weight to um, those who are in roles like pastors or teachers, that there's a, kind of a heavier bar, a higher bar for how we um, exert and uh, exert our influence and, and authority in, in the profession of teaching. So basically, how would our understanding of what God's up to and our ideas about heaven and hell that might be ingrained in us, um, how might that affect how we exert our authority or um, our influence over students? Can you think of some ways that might change how we treat people? Mm, Yeah, so I think, you know, to use that last example, if we have a vision where God's just trying to get people out of earth into heaven, you know, it's probably going to lead to a very um, escapist view of the gospel. And as teachers, that's probably going to mean like, it's like, oh, I just got to make sure kids get saved and get into heaven. You know, that, that, that kind of becomes the end goal. 
But if, uh, the, if God is ultimately about the reconciliation of heaven and earth, as the gospel proclaims he is, then uh, all of life uh, for the students that we're teaching, um, for our own existence as a school, all of life comes under the authority of God's kingdom and his reign and everything. Um, you know, there's kind of a, an, an obedience demanded by um, the fullness of life before the holy and loving God, the God that we have. So, um, yeah, and likewise, I think if we, you know, if, if our experience or under, if our understanding of God is not shaped by the gospel, we think God is just kind of distant, way out there, we've got to get our act together, go find him, then, uh, you know, that could maybe lead to, uh, uh, you know, as a teacher, I'm probably going to mirror and image that God. And that means like, I might be very aloof for my students and I expect them to just come to all the material and, you know, like figure it all out themselves. Whereas if I have an understanding of God shaped by the gospel and shaped by the person of Christ, where God um, enters into our predicament with us and he walks with us and he teaches us in a way that comes alongside us and mentors and disciples us. And he shapes us through experience um, as much as uh, just lecture, you know, God who's willing to speak in parable and the imagery of the day and not just kind of a, uh, the sterile four walls of a classroom, you know, like that, that, um, that, that experience in our lives as teachers of the gospel, I think is going to shape an experience with our students where we're going to seek to enter more into their world and come alongside them and seek to uh, apply the material in a way that um, connects with their own, you know, experience and all. So uh, I think uh, in college, uh, one of, well, the most influential teacher probably ever had, but I remember, um, yeah, he would make time to, you know, at least once a term, but it often ended up being more. I took a couple of classes with him, would would take each student in the classroom out to coffee and just get a chance to hear more of their story and how they were processing the stuff in the class. A lot of the material in the class was pretty hard, you know, and just a chance to personally process. And with as many students as he had, <laughs> the fact that he would take out, take that kind of time out of his schedule, um, to facilitate kind of a closeness with the student and kind of entering into their own learning uh, personally, you know, I, I think was really a powerful example. Yeah, definitely. I guess I'm kind of curious because that that whole idea of re refocusing the idea of heaven and hell and establishing it to the biblical way of viewing heaven and hell and earth, how have you either within pastoring, personal life, whatever aspect. Because there's two conversations that I think of that we will probably go through. And I'm just wondering if you have one, a person who doesn't know the gospel at all, that has no aspect other than the culture that you mentioned before, the culture that speaks upon heaven and hell, that's their establishment. And then there's also that other side where it's very Christianese, and a lot of Christian language, but it's still that that complex of like, I follow Jesus because I want to go to heaven, rather than the actual end goal, which is his is him, which is Christ and and being a part of the kingdom here now and then forever and eternity. But how do those conversations kind of go about? What are how do you explain out of it? I don't yeah. know, <laughs> like. Those are two walls that I feel like we would face 
here at this school because everyone comes from a different perspective. Um, we would love, you know, 100% of our population to be fervent followers of Christ. But we're not going to lie. Like, that's not that's not the case. Like, we're going to have people who have a perspective of Christianity that doesn't have that alignment of heaven and hell. But then we're also going to have people who have never heard the gospel before. And I'm just wondering if you've you've had those conversations. And, how, like, for me, how do you talk to someone who has a view of heaven and hell and they believe that that's right. Like, they believe that that's the way to go. But that's not really kingdom. That's not focused on on Christ. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I well, on the one hand, yeah, I, I don't feel like the, the weight or pressure of, like, I need to convince the world or anything, you know. But uh, two, two of the main goals I would have, I, I think one is um, trying to help people who struggle with these topics, you know. And, and that's sort of in the... Uh, um, you know, one, one area. And the other is, is a, is a pastor just kind of going, what are we teaching our people from the front? So, you know, equipping the church, equipping the body of Christ with a healthy, robust theology. And so if I'm talking with someone personally, um, I think, you know, I, I found one of the best things to do is to listen, you know, to ask lots of questions, uh, rather than trying to be the answer man who, just right out of the gate. Well, this is why you're thinking of it wrong. This is what it really, you know, like uh, I, I found that a lot of times I think um, people will more <laughs> encounter God's pursuit of them through someone who embodies God's patience and enters in with them and hears their heart, hears their concerns. And I've often found, you know, so if someone is telling me like, oh, I can't believe in a God who would command, you know, genocide in the Old Testament, or I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, you know, I usually ask people, well, Kimmy, what's your picture of what's happening in the Old Testament or what's your picture of what hell is? And usually after they've described it, um, it's pretty easy for me also to say, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like uh, it, it's, uh, it, it can kind of reveal that, um, you know, there's a caricature and, and I think it can clear the way for some, kind of some constructive conversation around, well, you know, what do you believe, Josh? You know, and, and, and uh, able to share more from a place of um, mutuality rather than uh, the answer man who's got it all figured out. Because I don't. These aren't, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's more just these are paradigm shifts that have helped me. Uh, but I don't claim to have it all figured out or anything of that nature. Uh, and then from the front, too, I think showing how when it comes to equipping the body of Christ with teaching, uh, whether as a pastor or if you guys as teachers, if there are classes and things like doctrine and all, I'm just trying to help make the connections. I, I, I explore a lot in the book, things like um, how God's motive is, uh, to use the hell topic as an example, God's motive is protection. It's not torture. It's not kind of this underground torture chamber, but it's God protecting the goodness and flourishing of his kingdom uh, by containing the destructive power of unrepentant sin outside the kingdom. And so and God's kind of like a, a, a village chief protecting his village from hostile invasion. And, um, and I, I think similarly, like we should want to, uh, man, care for those who are vulnerable, want to protect, use our influence and, what, and whatever that we have to protect those who are at risk of being mistreated. And, um, you know, man, just hammered by, sin's brutal force in our world, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do try and make the connections. You know, I think a lot of books on 
things like heaven and earth and hell, whatever, or, or these topics, they can, uh, it's fine. You know, there's a place for abstract stuff, but they can tend to come across kind of very theoretical and abstract. And, and one of the things that I wanted to try and do here was explore how this connects to things like the church's involvement in foster care or working with refugees or, um, some of the political tensions of our time internationally and domestically and how, how I think, uh, a healthier picture of, the gospel in these areas actually speaks into all of life for us as followers of Jesus. I, I think that's a, a perfect opportunity to switch gears and talk about the pursuing God. And I think you have throughout this whole thing. So in terms of your book, the pursuing God, was it written almost like directly as a sequel to the skeletons in God's closet? I mean, how does that work? Can you tell us a little bit more about the pursuing God specifically? Yeah, totally. So kind of, so the, uh, the pursuing God, the basic idea there, the concept of the book is just that uh, <clears throat> I think many of us, uh, you know, basically treat God like, like feel like God's lost, like He's out in the universe somewhere. He's waiting for us to kind of follow any trail of breadcrumbs we can to go out and find Him. And so we talk about things often like searching for God, exploring spirituality, finding faith. Uh, the premise of the book though, is what if we have it backwards and God's actually the one coming after us? And I believe Jesus reveals uh, the, the pursuing God, a God who is kind of on the hunt, on the prowl to rescue and redeem and restore his, 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 his creation and, and us as humanity to himself. And so the book's basically looking at, you know, God's relentless, extravagant pursuit of us uh, and saying, you know, the central question of the gospel is not have we jumped high enough, worked hard enough, you know tried hard enough the question is rather do we want to be found and so in this one uh similarly though like the the heart of the book is offering some paradigm shifts around how we tend to see god uh in our culture and trying to present how the gospel actually confronts us with with a radically different picture um so and, and like the first one you know i i i wanted to deal with some of the tough topics of the faith uh things that uh Many people might say, well, I don't know that I want that God to find me. <laughs> you know, like, so, so, for example, I look at topics like sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, is God a bloodthirsty carnivore? Like, what is going on with all the dead meat everywhere? Right? <laughs> um, or uh, wrath. Why does God get angry? You know, does he just kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed some days? Is God's wrath opposed to his love? And looking at how God's wrath arises because of his love for the world, not, not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. Um, and the the atonement or the cross is really the heart of the book, uh, the Trinity and the cross. One of the caricatures that is out there today is, um, you know, saying some traditional understandings of the cross uh, as divine child abuse, like where the father's kind of beating the snot out of his son or whatever. And, and, um, and, I'm wanting to say, yeah, that's a total caricature. It's not divine child abuse. Um, and yet I do think we need to be able to deal with themes like sacrifice and wrath at the cross. Like how is the son, uh, you know, how, how is the son sacrificing himself as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, bearing the weight of our sin and exile and death and destruction. And, um, and the father, like how, in what ways is the divine anger against injustice in the world and idolatry and all these other things that Christ bears? How is how did the Trinity and the cross um, relate? And so that's, um, I would say from a theological end, that, that, that was one of the central 
themes I went in wanting to try and tackle. Um, but in the book, it's, uh, it's, you know, a third of the book is, is about the cross and looking at some of those kind of themes there. And again, once again, trying to show how, let's see if the central theme of the first book was the goodness of God, the central theme of this one would be the love of God, like God's room, love, and how far he's willing to go to bring us home. Yeah, it's, it's pretty popular right now to, uh, I, maybe it's always been popular, I'm just being more exposed to it, but that term of divine child abuse and questioning penal substitutionary atonement and everything. Um, and that's, that's quite a challenge. And um, have you read, I read um, in the spring, I read The Day the Revolution Began, the N.T. Wright book. Oh, I love N.T. Wright, but I have not read, uh, I, I, I need to pick that one up, and okay. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, I actually, I had a, I used my free Audible token to listen to it on my commute, so I didn't read it, but <laughs> it's not ingrained. But um, what what I appreciate about that is it seems like it's kind of your same heart where you, you mentioned the caricature of divine child abuse. So he, he kind of tears down the caricature that we have that a lot of people might talk about while still affirming like, yeah, he is, he is the sacrifice. There is... Um, that whole element, that whole narrative that Jesus is still a part of, um, we just have this this misunderstanding of it that we tend to build up sometimes. And then you can swing the complete opposite way and completely reject that as well. And um, yeah, that's a tough one to, to balance in our, our culture today. And I think especially working with young kids growing up um, right now. So anyways, that's not much of a question. That was just me thinking yeah. out loud again yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and i love yeah i love nt Wright. he's really been a big uh, influence for me he's shaped and formed a lot of my thinking i haven't read day the revolution began yet but i i have read a few reviews where uh yeah so i can't speak firsthand this is kind of coming secondhand but uh and I, i've heard him interviewed about it and one of the things the impression i have without having read it is that uh probably similar to me he uh will call out the caricature but from what I understand in the book, I don't know that he presented a healthy, robust, you know, the, the alternative, which yeah. I've seen him elsewhere. I think in his more academic work, I've seen him, I think, frame uh, what the penalty is, what substitution is. Like, he, he, he frames those things really well in some of his more academic work. Um, from my understanding in this one, he definitely, uh, my understanding, like, articulates well many other aspects of the atonement, what's happening to the cross, but uh, that one seems to maybe get a little bit of short shrift there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so hopefully the, the pursuing guy could be a good compliment to yeah. and, and be not only critiquing the caricature, but um, uh, fleshing out in accessible everyday language how the, you know, a, a robust, healthy version of it works. Definitely. So you said something when you were describing the book, um, and it it did spark something in my mentality of like, maybe we do it during uh, chapel sometimes. I know I hear it constantly, but that idea of us pursuing God uh, rather than flipping it, which is, you know, what if God is the one who's pursuing us? And how does that look? How does that look? I know you probably <laughs> go through it in your book, but how does that look? And then, you know, we're, we're teeth, we're, we want these kids to be, you know, kingdom followers, Christ followers, um, kids who are living for the Lord, but, you know, we want them to quote unquote pursue God. But how, how does one 
see it as God pursuing us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm not against us pursuing God. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> it, it, yes. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think it's kind of a question of emphasis, uh, starting point, you know, like where, where do we kind of, uh, where's the emphasis? So to give an example from my own life, part of my experience in college was I have come to faith. I, I came to school and I said, at university, I'm like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to, God, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to follow Jesus. Um, so I went to a campus group and I said, well, how do I do that? You know? And, uh, they're like, Oh, well you play music. Why don't you, um, help lead worship every week? And I was like, okay, you know, and, and I don't know that I was a believer yet, but I'm like, all right, I'll lead in worship every week. And, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, what's next? And they're like, Oh, well, are you studying the Bible? We have this Bible study weekly that, that happens. And I was like, okay. So I, I go to that Bible study and, and I start growing and there were good things, but I found myself still feeling empty. And so I was like, okay, well, what's next? And he's like, well, we have a prayer group that meets, um, you know, 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings uh, if you want to get up early. And I remember thinking, like, all right, that sounds like Navy SEALs, yeah. gung-ho. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm getting up, uh, you know, 6 a.m., and my roommates are hungover, like, where are you going, dude? And I'm like, I'm hey, you know. And, 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 but I still actually ended up feeling more empty. So I was like, all right, well, what's next? And he's like, well, are you sharing your faith? And give me some tracks and sort of unleashed me like a wolf on campus on my unsuspecting victims, you know, and, uh, and I had good conversations with folks. Um, I tend to be pretty laid back and just ask folks what they think about God and all, you know, but still the, the irony was, I felt like the more things I was doing to pursue God, the more distant God, you know, and, um, and so all that climax that summer, I, I, I was like, I know it'll fix it. I'm on a mission trip, you know, so I go to Japan <coughs> and I, in a lot of ways, the experience was really great. The Japanese church I was a part of there was, um, they just seemed to like rest in the love of God for them, right? Uh, and it's not like they weren't doing it. I mean, they had amazing stuff going on, but uh, it wasn't characterized by the striving in my own life. They seemed to just live in kind of this rest of God's love for them. And so I loved that, but I didn't have a category to put it. I didn't know how to make sense of it. So I came back home at the end of that summer, and, and this is sort of the... The point or end of the story was I um, had this uh, job landscaping for three days in this backyard. So I'm in that backyard, and in retrospect, I think it was symbolic. Uh, this is kind of where I encountered Christ, right? Like, so I'm in this backyard, and I'm digging up all these shrubs and roots and trees and deep-rooted stuff. And simultaneously, I'm kind of digging out these roots in my own soul. Like, God, what do I believe? Is this really who you are? And, and I kind of come to the end of that three days, and I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm dirty, I'm dusty, I'm surrounded by dirt and dust and death and just kind of this uprooted mess. And I finally just said, F it, God, like, if this is who you are, like, I want nothing to do with you. Um, and it wasn't the letter F, right? <laughs> I gave God the <laughs> and, uh, and it was, I, I don't know if it was like a minute later or an hour later, but I just remember being in that backyard, and for the first time in my life, finding myself surrounded by the presence of Christ, like in a way that was tangible, it was real. It was being in the presence of the King. I kind of like caught up in the spirit or however you want to you know, put it. But, um, and what I heard Jesus say was, Josh, you've had this whole thing backwards. Like you thought this was about you coming to find me. And the whole time I've been the one coming out to find you. And I think that just kind of radically shifted 
my whole understanding of what the gospel was, who Jesus is, who, who God is, like who the spirit is, like everything. And, and so I remember jumping around in the backyard going, it's grace, it's grace. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my ride came to pick me up later and like, what's, what's wrong with you? I'm like, that's grace. I'm beaming your tears. <laughs> and, uh, and then after that though, I, I found like I needed to step out of a lot of the Christian activity that I've been involved in that year, you know? And so, um, just cause of my associations with it. And so I, I, I basically would attend church on Sunday and, you know, sit under the preaching of the word and receive the sacraments. And I found God just shaping me big ways and forming my heart. I've had a lot of friends on campus from the year before who were like, Oh no, Josh is falling away. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm falling in. You know, like I, I described it as uh, I feel like I've been climbing this rope called Christianity, trying to get to God and my arms got tired and I couldn't make it to the top. And so I finally gave up and let go thinking that I was falling into nothing and found that I had fallen into Christ. Um, and so I remember evenings at nights that year, I would just be on my bed weeping tears of joy because of how good God was and the experience of his, his presence and his love. So all that to say, um, I also found God. I, I felt God was also saying, Josh, you spent so much time last year trying to do all this Christian activity. Uh, yet, you're in college, you, you have this opportunity for university education I've given you, like I actually want to encounter you in your studies, you know? And so I, I found like actually in my vocation and in my, um, in my, as a student and in the classes I was taking and professors and people who didn't believe in Jesus, you know, like that became a place where Jesus began rebuilding my understanding of the gospel and pressing me into a deeper reliance on him, going back to scripture, going back to an answer, but in, in short, I think just to say, like, uh, you know, I believe our pursuit of God is always, when, if it's healthy, it's always only a response to his prior pursuit of us. Like he is, pursue, even in his act of creation, like all, all of life is a response, you know, like it's, it's a, it's either a good response or a bad response, but it's all response to the God who's initiated with us. And so, um, and so it's not to say that we shouldn't pursue God, but uh, I think it's a reframing where the emphasis is and recognizing that when we do pursue God, we're pursuing a God who has already pursued us, come after us in Christ. That when we do love God, it's we're, we're responding to a God who has already loved us when we were his enemies and set against him. And Yeah. And that God's not absent or distant. He actually sustains the whole universe, the Father through the Son, and the Spirit is holding us together as we speak, and God's not far away. He's not silent. He's He's bigger than creation, but he's holding us all together through the sustaining power of his, his love as well. Gosh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever read uh, Spiritual Disciplines for a Christian Life by Donald S. Uh, Whitney? No. That... Like, a lot of what you were saying is basically, he basically gives you, like, 18 tools, but it's all in response, and every single time it's always a reminder of the response of it. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's just such a refreshing point of, you know, the, the good, you know, I think of, uh, is it, James, yeah, James talks about, uh, you know, faith without works is dead and it's just like our response 
He just gives us so much to respond to. Yeah. And I love that that you you had that opportunity that God was calling you to go to your studies and to find him um, within your vocation, which is something that I think a lot of students may not realize that that's what God is saying. Like, I'm really glad you told that story because that's so pivotal to us because how, you know, we can speak on it more as, as our group continues on, but how do we remind our students that God can be found in their studies and can be found in their athletics, friendships, <laughs> clubs, know, everything because, uh, he loves us first. So we can respond in love in all of those aspects or, you know, however you see it, because it's such a grand idea, but you know, probably rarely talked about. So I love that that was the story that you had. (laughs) (laughs) And as, as you're talking and I'm thinking about how we tend to view God and unlearning things. And like, for me, it was a similar story of, I just had a point where I realized and kind of admitted and almost shot to God, like, this is impossible. Like (laughs) I can't do this. And it was kind of like a, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You know, so just calm down for a second. (laughs) And, um, and, and that was the first time I, I really felt God's love and actual love for God rather than something to do uh, to, to try to get close to him. And it was just such a refreshing thing. So I'm thinking, okay, how can we help our students? And I know our relationships can mirror God's heart for us and everything, but here in an educational context, and, and we'll see if I can turn this into a question. I'm just, again, thinking. Um as teachers, we have this standard of here's what I need from you. Like, here's what you need to do. And here are the things that you need to do to get there. So we have our relationship with the students, but kind of by definition in education, it's based on performance. And, um, you know, you talked earlier about your professor who had that relationship with you. Um, I'm just trying to think for us as teachers, how do we in a and maybe it just we need to shift away from a performance-based relationship (laughs) like how do we make that relationship not just be performance-based to mirror God's heart for us how can we pursue our students and kind of mirror God's heart for us um, not to reinforce false understandings of God of hey I'm here here's the standard you need to earn to so go for it and good luck Mm, so uh, if I understand the basic question, just kind of going as, as a teacher, how might this kind of shape how we we interact and all with the students, and what, what how might that shape a different kind of teaching environment? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good question. You know, I, I think uh, yeah. On the one hand, you know, I think um, well, maybe uh, I think kind of like I shared earlier. Obviously, it depends. You know, how, how many students are in the classroom, what kind of capacity you have for personal engagement, but I do think um, the, you know, I, I think the most profound teachers in, in my experience, it's uh, been, there's been almost more of a mentorship aspect than, uh, you know, I think there can be kind of the image of the cold, distant professor who just spouts knowledge from the front and everyone has to kind of figure out how to digest as much of it as they can and regurgitate it back. Um, I think that's very different from, uh, you know, a teacher who's helping 
bring the student, like almost initiate them into a realm of knowledge about something, but also uh, care about their own formation. You know, that that's, uh, I think when Jesus was a, you know, Jesus in the day as a, as a, as a teacher, when they call him teacher, we tend to think of that just through a, um, the grid of, oh, he's got knowledge. He's going to share it to me on a PowerPoint and I'm going to write it down. You know, like yeah. that's very different from, uh, and just say like the knowledge teacher, uh, it, like the, they were people who you wanted to model your life on theirs, you know? And so I think one thought is just how they're removing, it, 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 we seem to very quickly able to remove the content we teach from the lives we lead. You know, and I think that's a danger, you know, so I think as teachers, what kind of life are we leading or modeling kind of before and in front of our students, uh, which can speak as much to our time outside of the classroom with them. Um, man, it, it may seem small, but I think the power of having, you know, whether it's going out for coffee with that one student, hearing more of their story or having a group of students over to, to your home, you know, like, like breaking out of kind of the, 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 the four sterile walls of the classroom environment and into more kind of the fullness of life. Um, the most powerful teaching I feel like I've done at, at our church has often occurred in our living room, you know, more than our classrooms. And um, there's just something about that kind of environment where hospitality can be key, uh, where there's kind of a celebration element and uh, um, an intimacy, uh, being able to dive in together. Um uh, so I, I guess ultimately like seeing what, you know, your, your place as a teacher or a pastor is one who is serving your students, uh, through your authority. I mean, you have an authority and a leadership, but you're using that authority and leadership to serve them rather than seeing them as sort of, um, them kind of existing to serve you, <laughs> you know, um, then the, maybe just a final thought too, is I, I think an awareness of how, our education, you know, maybe some of the cultural ways our educational system doesn't bear the marks of God's kingdom. You know, so as an example, and I've always just been struck by, it seems like a weird model we have in the West where um, it's like you have to, it's like we pull, and I'm thinking more of college here, but how we pull all of these, you know, youth out of, away from anyone older than them, away from anyone younger than them. Uh, we, you know, isolate them in a, campus, you know, it's kind of cut off from the rest of society with uh, people who are generally their same age, their same socioeconomic status, their same uh, just general stage of life and, and all that. And, uh, and we give them some books to read and tell them that they're fit to go around the world. You know? and, <laughs> and I think uh, in God's kingdom, I think there's a much more, um, you know, there's so much of learning is there, there is a huge role for the life of the mind and the intellectual and all, but there's also so much that's learned in the context of the fullness of community, a diverse, robust community, and in the process of mentorship and hands-on. You know, one thing that's hard as a pastor sometimes you have folks who come out of seminary and they show up at the church and, A, they, you know, demand that you give them a job. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we're, we're and B, there's often a kind of an arrogance coming in of like, I've got it all figured out because I've read the most up-to-date books, you know, and, and you're kind of go, okay, yeah, it's been a decade in the trenches. And then they, they tend, you know, people, you tend to come back with a different attitude after hmm. um, being in the trenches. And yet in my own life, 
it's been in the trenches that I've had older mentors who have most shaped my own understanding of the gospel, my own learning. And that's where many of the biggest questions were formed that the answers that I got back in school started to fit and come to life and make sense, like their significance come to life. So, um, yeah, so I don't know that that's really any kind of solution, but <laughs> just some, some thought and reflection on, uh, on, on the question. All right. Well, I, we know that this isn't a, a one-and-done conversation for us. Um, this is something we want to continue as long as we're a school, as long as we're in education, um, is how, how do we, I guess, disciple our students? How do we be those mentors to our students? How do we be mentored? And, um, yeah, I mean, our lives, it is the trenches, you know, living in this world and this culture, and how can we mentor our students through that process and, and find Jesus in that. So, man, um, as always with our last couple guests, well, every guest we've had so far, I'm so glad that it's recorded so I can go back and listen. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for spending your time with us. And um, yeah, a lot to take away from this. Definitely. So, oh. so where, where can our listeners find you? Uh, on the, uh, the, interwebs. the kids, kids call it the internet. Um, <laughs> yes. you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have a website. It's uh, Joshua Ryan Butler.com. Uh, it's Joshua Ryan Butler.com. Uh, my full name. And then, uh, I'm on Twitter at Butler Josh, um, Instagram and Facebook. If you just run a search for my name or, uh, um, yeah, the books, if anyone's interested are all out on Amazon or Pretty much every you know every major retailer they're actually on sale too i just got an email from the publisher that i think uh or skeletons at least i think is 2.99 right now or something like that for for this week so um it's the, the ideal time to pick it up <laughs> cool. yeah. well thank you so much again josh for joining us we really appreciate it definitely thank you guys it's been right. fun talking take care bye-bye Join us next time when we speak with Dr. John Mark Reynolds, the president of the St. Constantine School. Dr. Reynolds is also a fellow of humanities at the King's College in New York City. And he's also the author of numerous books, including When Athens Met Jerusalem, an introduction to classic and Christian thought. You're always going to be worse at this. You're always going to be worse at teaching people how to do their job than the people who are actually doing the job. So why in the world would you do that? Why would anyone pay you to teach a kid to, to do jobs that don't even exist yet? Um, I'm 53. Most of the high paying jobs that people want now did not exist for my K through 12 Christian school to, ch to train me to do. What they did do was teach me to read well, write well, think well, and be, to the extent that they could, a decent human being. And that has stood me in good stead.